Hello everyone, I have another guest on the podcast this week. It's Pavel Podvig, who's speaking to us from Geneva and is an expert on Russian nuclear weapons. Pavel will introduce himself and we'll go on with the interview. I'm, I'm Pavel Podvig. Uh, I'm uh, an independent researcher uh, who runs uh, a project uh, called uh, Russian uh, Nuclear Forces. Uh, I'm also a senior researcher at the UN Institute uh, for Disarmament Research and uh, a researcher with the Program on Science and Global Security at uh, Princeton University. Our first question is from Pete Clark, and he asks, um, history has given us at least two documented examples of World War III being averted by the level-headed thinking of a Russian officer. Is this type of thinking likely to prevail again in the event of escalation, or is Putin's authority too feared to refuse? Well, things are a little bit more complicated. First of all, uh, we do not really have two documented examples of World War III being averted. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's a bit more complicated than that. Uh, the uh, one that is uh, kind of the most uh, famous one is uh, Colonel Petrov uh, in uh, 1983. In fact, what what happened uh, was not that uh, it was Petrov's decision to to make to whether to launch or not. Uh, the uh, the system that uh, was built in the Soviet Union, the command and control system, uh, in fact, has uh, certain safeguards uh, against uh, false alarms and, uh, in fact, uh, the 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 standard procedure there uh, was, uh, and I hope still is, uh, that in, uh, in, in case of an attack, uh, that if, if an attack is detected, uh, if the early warning system uh, detects uh, incoming missiles, uh, then uh, the algorithm uh, is that uh, there is a way to uh, prepare uh, strategic forces for a response. But the actual uh, command to launch uh, a retaliatory strike uh, would come uh, only after the actual nuclear detonations on the Soviet or Russian soil are detected. So in that sense, uh, the, uh, the false alarm, which was detected in September uh, 83, was sent a signal to the uh, upstairs, uh, but uh, it was not uh, something uh, that would have launched uh, an attack and kind of started World War III. Uh, I am uh, positive that uh, the this false alarm would have been recognized as a false alarm very, very early on. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, uh, Colonel Petrov uh, did anything wrong or that he does not deserve uh, credit. He does because uh, certainly he's, he, he, he made the right call and uh, his, uh, his call uh, did contribute to the assessment 
uh, and to the fact that uh, that false alarm didn't go higher than it actually should should have. But but as I said, it's not like uh, he was the uh, the person who stopped this. No, the, I mean, the system uh, was designed to prevent exactly uh, this this kind of things uh, from happening. Uh, the other uh, incident uh, is probably uh, the uh, the incident uh, during the Cuban crisis when the uh, submarine commander uh, is reported to uh, consider uh, launching uh, a nuclear strike, nuclear torpedo. Uh, again, uh, we don't have uh, first-hand evidence. Uh, there, there was a. Uh, work uh, done by uh, my colleague uh, Svetlana Saranskaya, who works in, uh, with the National Security Archive in Washington, D.C. Uh, and uh, it's more complicated than that. We, 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 I discussed it with her, uh, and uh, as I understand it, uh, there was no dramatic kind of a conference uh, of uh, officers on, on, on board. It's not like one person vetoed uh, the decision. No, it, it was a chaotic situation. Uh, and uh, uh, as I understand it, at some point, uh, the the captain uh, sort of said something to the effect that, well, we should just launch a torpedo uh, on them. Uh, but that was really just in passing, and it, it wasn't uh, seriously considered. Although they uh, apparently they did have the authority to do so. Uh, but uh, again, as I understand, uh, it was not something that was uh, really very close to, to being executed. Okay, thank you. And um, moving forward to the, the current situation, um, if, and it's a big if, of course, if Putin gave an order to launch uh, a nuclear strike in Ukraine, uh, what is the launch order process? And are people in that chain of command able to to refuse? Uh, well, uh, that's, a, that's a very good question. And, and the uh, honest answer is that we don't know, uh, but we can have some idea of how this uh, might work. Well, first of all, uh, if we are talking about scenarios that would involve uh, a, a use of nuclear weapons in Ukraine, Right, so that uh, then uh, we are definitely not talking about uh, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles or submarine-launched ballistic missiles, the strategic weapons. Uh, so uh, these uh, uh, would be, uh, and, and the, the reason for that is uh, because any use of a strategic weapon would definitely be recognized as a strategic attack by the United States. And there is a very high chance that that uh, would in invite uh, a strategic strike by the United States. And that is well understood. And uh, we can be uh, confident that uh, the Russian leadership is not considering uh, using uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles or submarine launch ballistic missiles uh, in uh, the context of uh, uh, the war in Ukraine. So uh, what we are uh, talking about then is uh, a possibility, uh, an option would be uh, to use other weapons, for example, 
air-launched uh, cruise missile or uh, ground-launched cruise missile like Iskander, uh, or uh, it could be ballistic missile, again, Iskander, a short-range ballistic missile, or it could be a bomb uh, that would be delivered by an aircraft. Uh, and uh, if we are talking about the, uh, for example, air-launched cruise missiles, uh, those, e even though these are considered strategic, quote-unquote, in uh, the New Star Treaty, for example, uh, these are uh, really uh, not deployed with the high degree of readiness as the intercontinental ballistic missiles and, and uh, submarines, uh, missiles on submarines. So. Uh, so uh, if we're looking at uh, the kind of weapons that could possibly be used in Ukraine, uh, and that's a very big if here, <clears throat> which, but that's a separate issue. So if we're talking about those weapons, uh, then uh, the uh, situation with those weapons is that they are not deployed in the sense that they are not mated to their delivery systems. So there are, there are no Iskander missiles uh, that are kind of driving around with nuclear warheads on them. Uh, and there are no uh, air bombers uh, sitting on uh, tarmac uh, with nuclear weapons attached, whether. Uh, so uh, those weapons are in uh, storage. Uh, they are. Uh, there, there are dedicated storage facilities. Uh, there are, uh, depends how you count, but about 30, uh, 30 uh, plus uh, of those facilities. And uh, normally uh, the, these storage facilities are uh, at least a few kilometers away from uh, the delivery system. So if you have an air base, uh, for example, with, uh, with bombers, uh, that could potentially deliver uh, air-launched cruise missiles, uh, then the, the cruise missiles or warheads for cruise missiles, they are stored at some distance. So you need to take them out of storage, load them on trucks, drive them to the airfield, uh, unload, uh, attach them to the uh, aircraft and sort of all this. So, uh, so the point here is that uh, that there, there is no uh, kind of a button somewhere on the, the desk of uh, the commander-in-chief that uh, could be pressed and uh, Iskander missile uh, takes off. No, uh, so it, it is a process and that, that process involves uh, a, a number of, I mean, A, it would involve a decision to develop a plan, uh, although I think maybe the military have uh, the range of options and plans already, uh, but still you uh, you would need uh, the president, uh, the commander-in-chief to issue an order to bring uh, forces, uh, those forces into a higher uh, state of readiness. So get them to the point where aircraft are, are sitting on tarmac with nuclear weapons attached or those Iskander missiles are uh, have uh, nuclear warheads installed, uh, but that takes time and that takes uh, a deliberate uh, decision to do so. Uh, definitely, uh, I would imagine it would take 
uh, a written order, sort of that. that. So there, there are many ways, uh, many many points in this process uh, where uh, the, the the military uh, could. Uh, I don't think that they uh, could uh, veto the decision if the decision is taken by the president. But but then again, it's not like uh, there is someone pressing a button and things go off. And that, that's uh, uh, they they would be able to offer uh, their advice and opinion. Uh, whether uh, someone uh, could just uh, disobey and not follow the order, I would doubt. Uh, and uh, and and if we are if we are talking about this kind of a deliberate uh, first strike first use, presumably there is enough time in the in, in in the process to deal with any incidents of that kind. So uh, again, the president is the commander in chief. Uh, he could uh, fire a general who doesn't follow the order and all that. So, but uh, but but again, uh, it's not uh, there. There is uh, no kind of automaticity in the process. It is not uh, just pressing a button. Thank you. And so, um, from what you said there, I assume if Russia was readying itself for a tactical nuclear strike, the the process, you know, the, the physical process on the ground would be very visible and obvious to the West. Is that correct? It's not entirely clear how visible that would be. Uh, it uh, would be difficult to hide, uh, maybe not impossible, uh, but uh, there, are, there are definitely signs, as I said, you need to load the uh, warheads on, on the truck, drive them, sort of these. And then there are also other signs. It's not just uh, satellites or something. It is uh, there. There are uh, there is signal intelligence, so there are orders issued. Sort of there is a, the radio traffic or communication traffic, that kind of things. So I think that that's uh, that would be uh, would be visible to to definitely to some extent. And I, I think that. Uh, it would be impossible for Russia in this uh, case to assume uh, that uh, it can do it covertly. So uh, the United States may or may not see it, but Russia could not rely on uh, that being done in, in secret. And on some level, uh, why would uh, Russia do that in secret? Because the, the point of the uh, the the uh, threat is that the threat should be should be visible. There is uh, absolutely no uh, advantage uh, in uh, kind of a doing it uh, uh, covertly and doing it in secret. Okay, thank you. And moving on to a question from Ross Hendry, uh, we've recently seen that Russia's conventional military forces were in a poor state of readiness. Is there anything to suggest that their strategic nuclear forces are in a better state? Well, uh, I would definitely assume that uh, these uh, strategic forces and uh, nuclear nuclear uh, forces, and that would include nuclear weapons and delivery systems, uh, all the evidence we have is that those are kept in good working order. 
So, uh, for example, and there are ways of uh, judging that. Uh, for example, uh, there are uh, Russia occasionally tests uh, its uh, missiles, intercontinental ballistic missiles, for example. Uh, this uh, statistics uh, is known. Uh, the there there have been no uh, nuclear tests, of course, since uh, for. 30 years now, uh, but uh, there, there, there are, these things are not really, uh, there are no kind of moving parts there, and there are ways to uh, make sure that they, uh, they, they work uh, without actually detonating them, without having nuclear detonations of the Russian, uh, Soviet Russian uh, scientists, they, uh, they uh, they've been good at uh, at that. So uh, my take is that from the pieces of evidence that we have is that the reliability of these uh, systems is on the order of uh, ninety plus percent. So that's uh, so that's something that we should uh, kind of keep in mind. And uh, but but even with the with the the thing with nuclear weapons is that even if even if uh, only I don't know, a quarter of these uh, weapons uh, will uh, will go off. That's that would be uh, that would be enough. So that that's not that's not something that should be seriously kind of taken kind of relied on. I would say so. That's not the case. Okay, thank you. And. Um... A question from Rhys Jackson. Um, what rhetoric can we expect from Putin or the Kremlin if he genuinely starts to plan to try and turn his war in Ukraine nuclear? Um, and I, if I can butt in here also, I suppose we must also ask you whether you think that this conflict in Ukraine, this war in Ukraine, is likely to turn nuclear? Well, uh, one thing that uh, we need to keep in mind when we're kind of thinking about this possibility of uh, Russia's using uh, nuclear weapons in Ukraine uh, is that uh, there are no plausible military missions for nuclear weapons there. So uh, again, we're we're talking about uh, maybe a short-range ballistic missile or short-range cruise missile or long-range cruise missile delivered by air. Uh, so they were, or, or a bomb or something, uh, but the thing is that uh, those uh, weapons do not give Russia the option of achieving some kind of a military goal. So there, there are no uh, tank columns that are advancing toward that that should be stopped. Uh, there are no uh, aircraft carrier groups, or uh, there are no uh, really. Uh, there are air air bases, but then again, uh, even if Russia would be able to take out and uh, some uh, air bases uh, in Ukraine, that is not a decisive kind of a military factor in this war. So, so in this war, uh, there there is, uh, as I said, there is no plausible military military mission for uh, nuclear weapons. So, the only option, the only reason uh, why in this situation, uh, uh, Russia would uh, could consider using uh, nuclear weapons is to use them as a strategic weapon, as a as a way to 
uh, alter the strategic uh, configuration, the alter the strategic outcome of this war, which uh, very bluntly, uh, basically to use weapons in the way that the United States used them uh, against Hiroshima and Nagasaki in the, in the uh, World War II, uh, which is uh, to attack civilians, to kill a lot of people uh, and uh, to break the, the will of the adversary. So uh, that is uh, basically, that's the only uh, kind of a possibility here mm -hmm. in, in the sense that uh, you could also think and people uh, do talk about the, a demonstration strike, sort of a small weapon uh, detonated somewhere high up. Uh, so it does not really kill anyone, but it demonstrates uh, something. But then the question is, what exactly would it demonstrate? And the answer is that it would demonstrate the resolve to attack civilians and to kill a lot of people to break the will of the uh, of uh, the opponent. So, as I understand it, and I hope, uh, in fact, uh, that the the threshold for this kind of use is actually a pretty high. So uh, to to so to use nuclear weapons in, in Ukraine, uh, the Russian leadership would have to basically sit down and uh, prepare a plan uh, of killing hundreds of thousands of people outright, or uh, prepare uh, to send send a signal that it is willing to do so, uh, and and that is uh, as I said I definitely hope that uh, this is a very high threshold so and so far it seems like that's uh, exactly uh, the, the case uh, there, are, there are other ways uh, uh, of escalation so uh, for example uh, and that is something that understood I think uh, in the west as well as in Russia uh, that a direct military uh, clash between uh, NATO and uh, Russian militaries could have a, could escalate further. But then again, if you look at that, uh, you would see that uh, there is no truly military mission there. So they, uh, again, any use of nuclear weapons would be just a signal. Uh, that uh, the, the party that used them is ready to go ahead and inflict this massive damage by killing a lot of people on the other side. So again, this is a high threshold. And I think it is in our, uh, uh, we, we, could, we could push it higher in the sense that uh, we should uh, clearly uh, think uh, uh, about this potential use of nuclear weapons as this kind of a, barbaric and inhumane act and that should be condemned uh, unequivocally okay thank you i, I found that your recent uh, twitter thread about tactical weapons um so eye-opening uh, pavel because i quite quite lazily i suppose well my expertise isn't in the weapon rates and civil defense but i always thought of tactical weapons as simply the small nukes that's all but of course the way you explain it is it's not the yield, it's what purpose they're put to, is that correct? It's whether they can achieve some military goal out on the battlefield. Yeah, it, it, it is not in the yield. Uh, if you kind of work back, uh, yes, there, there are 
certain weapons that are small enough uh, to not to cause uh, what is called the collateral damage. Sort of, you could uh, so you could uh, potentially think about using a, a nuclear, a small nuclear weapon uh, against uh, a military target. So, uh, which I mean, think about airfield, for example, right? The, but the, the, the problem is that, uh, as I said, uh, if you look at this kind of a conflict, then uh, taking out a, and one airfield would not give Russia any military utility. So that's the, uh, that's, uh, it would be kind of on some level uh, that would definitely have some military purpose, but, but, uh, but if you compare it with the uh, with the uh, with the backlash uh, that uh, would be created, uh, the breaking the uh, nuclear taboo that was around for almost eighty years, uh, and so taking just one airfield and uh, not, these are not quite comparable. So and <clears throat> but that also uh, it is uh, important uh, again to understand that. It is, I think it's uh, General Mattis, who was the Secretary of Defense uh, in the US uh, uh, back in the day. Uh, I think he correctly said once that any use of nuclear weapons would be strategic. And uh, that is true because uh, the even, even if uh, a weapon is used against the military target, like an airfield, and again, even if it's a small weapon that does not uh, does not damage uh, much outside of the uh, military, the, this particular airfield, the the purpose of the use uh, would clearly be to demonstrate the resolve to escalate and go and uh, eventually uh, attack cities and kill a lot of people. So that's, so the, the message there uh, would be uh, different from the uh, very kind of narrow military, military purpose. And that is, uh, I think, understood. Thank you. And um, in response to a recent FT article, you tweeted, something caught my eye. Quote, they, the Russians, haven't invested in a diverse arsenal of theater nuclear weapons out of boredom, said Rebecca Heinrichs. Little did she know that's in fact why they did it. Inertia would be a better word. So can you tell us more about this? Um, Russia have invested in a lot of tactical weapons out of inertia or, or boredom. What, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it, it is important to to understand that it, 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 these weapons are not there because uh, someone needs them, right? Uh, as I said, it, there there is a there is a tremendous inertia in the system, and uh, this industry uh, has been around for more more than eighty years now, almost eighty years now. And uh, I think it's wrong to uh, think, and I, I know that it is wrong to think that uh, the weapons are developed because some wise men in the cabinets uh, kind of think about uh, missions that they need those weapons for, and uh, kind of they they come and say, "Oh, this is why we need hundred of these and two hundred of those, and we need this and that." No, that that's not how it's happening. 
uh, what happens is that uh, there are there are people whose uh, job is to make weapons, and they come and they say, "We tell you that you need our weapons. Uh, this is what you need, and uh, this is how you uh, would use them." So it's not exactly boredom, uh, although there is a part of that too. So uh, they need to do something, and it's it's very rare. Uh, that uh, certain programs were just, or certain areas were just closed. Uh, it happened, uh, by the way, the, the, the Russia actually closed down its uh, uh, nuclear artillery uh, program because it was so bizarre and crazy. So even they kind of realized that, yeah, that's, that's not something that we should be doing. Uh, but in other areas, it, it is, uh, again, if we are looking at the number of uh, weapons that uh, Russia appears to have, the non-strategic, uh, the uh, it's about from 1,000 to 2,000 is the estimate. Again, it's not like mm -hmm. uh, there is a, th these numbers out there because someone believes that there is a plausible military mission for those no that's uh, that's the that's the inertia of the system well that concludes our interview with pavel podvik thank you again pavel for participating i've got more interviews coming up on the podcast so please do subscribe so you don't miss them uh what i'm particularly looking forward to i actually just confirmed last night will be an interview with Nick Meyer, the director of The Day After. Remember, you can support the podcast and get access to bonus episodes on Patreon. So please look at patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo. And you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, on Facebook as Nuclear Britain, or at my website, juliemcdowell.com. And Pavel is on Twitter as Russian Forces. I certainly recommend following his Twitter account, it's been invaluable over the past few weeks especially. So thank you all for listening. I'll be back soon with another episode.